This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. I'm Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. The first season of this podcast took the world by storm, racking up 14,000 downloads in 40 countries worldwide. Clearly, we tapped into a global hunger for ideas and stories from imaginative and innovative educators and education leaders engaging students across the Hawaiian Isles. In the middle of a pandemic, we pivoted and took the second season of this series virtual. I built a compact podcast studio in my home on Oahu and physically distant guests call in via their mobile phones. In the last episode, I talked with Dan Gaudiano, the Academy Science Department head at Punahou School. Dan and I did a deep dive into science research, competency-based learning, design thinking, student travel, and much, much more. It was awesome. Today, I'll be talking with Buffy Cushman-Pates, the executive director at SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability. SEEKS is a secondary public charter school in Honolulu, Hawaii, founded in 2013. It currently serves approximately 180 students in 6th, 7th, and 8th grades. SEEKS offers a community-focused, interdisciplinary, project-based, tuition-free secondary school experience for Oahu families. In 2010 and 2011, Buffy was honored with an Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellowship. She served her fellowship year at the National Science Foundation's Office of Legislative and Public Affairs. Buffy completed her master's in school leadership at the Harvard Graduate School of Education in May 2012. This interview is particularly wonderful for me because I was on the team Buffy assembled to write SEEK's charter. Buffy has been a strong and clear voice for education redesign in Hawaii. She is a member of the Hawaii Innovative Leadership Network and a mentor to other public, private, and charter school leaders in this state. And now, here's my conversation with Buffy Cushman-Bates. Buffy Cushman-Pates, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. So I'm really excited about this, Buffy. I've been waiting a long time to interview you, so I just had to say that at the beginning here. This is going to be <laughs> this is going to be so much fun. So, Buffy, our format is ten questions. So I'm going to roll through ten questions with you, and you you just go ahead and knock them out of the park. Um, so we're, <laughs> we're going to jump into question number one. So All right. I'm going to do this interview differently than anything I've done in the past. I'm going to call this conversation a deep dive into Seek's genome. So let's mm. roll the dice and see what happens, okay? So let's start with an explanation of what Seek's is. However, let's not over-explain it and give away all of its gems at once. Let's just start with a, a relatively brief overlay. So what is SEEKS? SEEKS. 
takes is the school for examining essential questions of sustainability. And the name really does describe what it is and what we do. And, you know, how do you ask me to describe this succinctly a year or two ago? It's really hard. It's just it's hard to do an elevator pitch. But uh, I've been really working on thinking about, like, what are the key elements of the model? And it's this. First, community. And we, I like to think about this in terms of, like, an analogy with uh, a seed uh, sprouting into a tree. But the most important part of all that, the foundation, is the soil. And community is the soil of everything we do at Seeks. We have a lot of explicit structures to build, maintain, and if necessary, restore community. And we think of community as the soil. The seeds that get planted in that soil are the content, the disciplinary content knowledge. And we want not knowledge and skills um, that happens in core content courses, math, science, English, social studies, arts. And it's really helping students learn to love the disciplines for the sake of them. Love reading for the sake of reading. Love math because it's cool and interesting. Science because it helps you understand the world around you. So the content are the seeds that get planted in that soil. But then we want to make sure that we nurture and water that soil. And we do that, nurturing and watering, in our interdisciplinary project-based courses that we call EQS, our Essential Question of Sustainability course. And that is a multidisciplinary course taught by multiple teachers. And in most years, it's a multi-age course. And it's eight hours a week, two hours a day, four days a week, where students are examining essential question of sustainability over the course of a year and really digging deeply into complex issues and then ultimately developing a project, uh, a teacher-led project first semester and then a project that they've designed themselves for second semester. So that's the place where they can apply the skills and tools they learn from those seeds. You know, they can water those seeds in that afternoon course. Now, our belief, our basic theory here is that this combination of community plus content, plus interdisciplinary project-based courses helps students develop what we call our sustainability skills. And those sustainability skills are basically our learner profile, thinking systemically, managing effectively, reasoning analytically, collaborating productively, and communicating powerfully. And our theory of action is that students will develop those skills through the combination of the community the content courses and the EQS courses. And so they demonstrate that they basically sprout, sprout those sustainability skills. Um, and then our ultimate goal is that seekers will be stewards of planet Earth and healthy, effective citizens of the world. And we're helping them develop all of those things over their time at Seeks so that they can ultimately grow into trees. That's the basic model. Awesome. And so it, it seems appropriate. Where is Seeks located? And I understand that you have a, a unique relationship with a public school here in Hawaii, a, a regular public school. You know, yes, a DOE public school. We currently share the campus with Kaimuki High School. Um, that's not necessarily a forever relationship. And it was um, so one of the things we've really been thinking about a lot lately in both, well, let me answer your question directly. First, we, we were in Kaimuki, on the edge of Kaimuki Kahala at the Salvation Army property where we rented for four years. Then we moved to the campus of Kaimuki High School. Right now we exist in sort of a virtual space. Um, and we really pride ourselves on being adaptable. One of the founding principles of our school is that 
a learning environment is composed of its uh, community, cultural values, and physical surroundings. And so our school has adapted as it has been in different environments, and that's actually one of the fundamental principles of our school is is, mm-hmm. is becoming the learning environment that we are based on who we are and where we are. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. That's perfect. And we'll come back to that um, adaptation okay. issue at the very end of, of this interview. So, okay. So here's here's the second question. You Both of you earned a Bachelor of Science in Geology from the University <laughs> of Florida. Go Gators. Mm-hmm. And you that's earned... Right. <laughs> that's right. And you earned a Master's in Science and Geology and Geophysics from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So in what ways did your love of geology and geophysics inform or influence how Seeks became Seeks? In other words, in what ways are these degrees and the learning that you did part of the DNA of Seeks? You know, sometimes it's hard to even recognize your own DNA because it's so inherent in you, right? So I will do my best to answer that. And I'll say, I'm going to start with this. What I love about geology, what hooked me on geology is plate tectonics. Plate tectonics explains everything about the natural world around us. I mean, not really everything, but really at this meta scale, this concept of, of these plates moving around relative to each other explain mountains, explain ocean basins, explain rivers, and then all the erosion and deposition. So these meta processes, I found them just so engaging and, and helped me, like, you know, they shaped my worldview basically once I got exposed to them in college. And, um, and I think that, also, the thing about being a geologist in geology is that you understand time and a really different time scale. Geologic time is, you know, over millions and millions of years, and you get to examine how the Earth has changed over time. And I think that really gives, you know, this inherent understanding of, of elements of sustainability, really, or elements of how the planet works, which then makes you all the, all the more aware of what's happening with our planet right now and on what time scale, and that time scale is so different than the time scale that's happened naturally through, his, through Earth's history. Um, so that's the way geology influences Sikhs, but I think also that geology is so inherently like you can learn about it in a book but it doesn't mean much what when it really becomes meaningful and for me the most powerful experience for me was when I was in a uh, geology an honors class in in my undergrad at University of Florida and my professor showed us a video that he had taken from the bottom of the ocean in the Alvin submersible of black smokers at a hydrothermal at the hydrothermal vent at a mid-ocean ridge mm. and it just came a lot. And I gave myself chicken skin right now. Just thinking about it. I remember, <laughs> yes, me too. I remember sitting in that basement. The geology department was in the basement. I remember sitting in that small classroom watching that video and just my mind exploding. That guy standing right there at the front of his classroom took this video at the bottom of the ocean. It was just this like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Science is like a thing. It's things done by people. It's, I mean, it just shifted my the whole my, my brain just shifted in that moment from science being a thing that was in a book, a set of facts, to science being real, alive, 
based on observations, based on what humans are doing, and it shifted everything for me. And I think, honestly, just a big part of my drive as an educator is just bombed that it took me till I was almost 20 years old to have that experience and that mm. understanding of science. Mm. And I want that for students so much mm. earlier because, I mean, because it shakes my worldview, but mm. that, I mean, I was 20. I could have done so much more. I was smart. I was talented. I was capable. I could have done so much more if I had a worldview that was more helpful right. <laughs> in really understanding how the world works. And so I think that SEEKS is at some level designed not at some level, SEEKS is designed to make sure that students have meaningful learning experiences mm. when they're 11, 12, 13 years old. Mm. And you know, wow, you've already, like, we're only 10 minutes into this, Buffy, and you've already given me an awesome gift, which is, you know, here here in 2020, oh my God, how how is it not possible to be kind of freaked out about what's happening in the world and everything that's going on mm-hmm. in the world? And you've suddenly given me a sense of calm because the tectonic plates are moving very <laughs> slowly and we don't matter and I don't matter and I can just relax into that thought. Oh, that makes me feel so mm-hmm. much better. Um, so, so perfect. So actually that's, that's a great segue into this question, which is, you know, back in 2010, while you were teaching science at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls, you did something called the Teacher at Sea Groovy Cruise to the Galapagos mm-hmm. Islands, where you did, in fact, a deep dive to the bottom of the ocean in Alvin, a famous diving submarine. And while on that dive, you talked to La Pietra students via some sort of a satellite phone link. And I I recall that like it was yesterday and I was in the room when it happened. Mm -hmm. And so in what ways did that experience shape how SEEKS was eventually designed several years later? In other words, where do we find the groovy in SEEKS DNA? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I would say that that was... um at some level, that was, that was part of the transition for me because I had been a scientist, you know, I, I had been a scientist and that, you know, going down in the Alvin submersible on, on that groovy cruise was actually my fourth and fifth Alvin dives because I had uh, had the opportunity on, on multiple cruises, research cruises prior to becoming a teacher when I was getting my degrees in um, my, my master's degree, even prior to my master's degree work, I was able to go down at Alvin, frankly, thanks to that professor who first inspired me. He became my mentor, still a friend to this day, um, but he helped set me up on those research experiences that then shifted me to becoming a graduate student, moved me out to Hawaii for the graduate um, program at the University of Hawaii. Um, The groovy cruise itself was really kind of a transition. I think one of the things I realized so I'm going to go back to my DNA a little bit more. My mom is a teacher. My mom was a teacher. My mom was a, a longtime educator. I grew up in a house with a mom who was a teacher and a dad who was a criminal defense attorney, actually. Mm. And, you know, what your parents do and what they believe and how they live their life obviously influences who you are. So that is a very much a part of my DNA. And specifically, my mom is a teacher, spending my afternoons in her classrooms, I've long, long, long paid attention to how people learn and also how I learn. And I think my experiences as a graduate student, I saw, I experienced this disconnect between what I knew about how we learn about science and honestly, some of my graduate level classes and how they were taught were really, that, that disconnect was, was frustrating for me. Mm. So I felt this kind of personal mission 
um, as I was transitioning from graduate school, from, from being a geologist, because I was on a path to uh, being a research scientist, and I had to go through a pretty big, one of the biggest decisions I've made in my life was to not finish the PhD program to get a master's instead and the shift into education, which I had finally come to terms with, with what my true love was. And so I, I think that in, in that transition, the... Um, the way that I did it was I, I felt this passion to helping scientists understand how they could create meaningful learning experiences or how they could help facilitate or foster meaningful learning experiences for kids in schools. And so that Ruby Cruise experience was um, one of the ways that I felt like I could help bridge. I felt that I uniquely, you know, I'm not the only person in the world, there's plenty of us that have this set of skills, but I had one, I, I like to think of it as I speak scientist. Mm, I, I right. spoke it better then. I'm no longer fluent, but at the time I was fluent in speaking <laughs> scientists and speaking kids and speaking, you know, regular person speak to understand these complex com- concepts, but without necessarily the, you know, very specific lingo. And so I think that that Groovy Cruise was an opportunity for me because I was able to help them write the proposal to the National Science Foundation to get that cruise funded. Mm. And I was part of their their broader impacts um, to the National Science Foundation grant was to part of that broader impacts was to have me come along as a teacher at sea. And I think I was able to help them do that because I spoke scientist and then I was able to actually have this meaningful you know, connection with kids. I mean, because I, I did that call, but I also did a blog the entire time. Mm. That's before blogs. Oh, yeah, I remember <laughs> really, the really blog. Yeah. yeah, and that blog was really about me trying to convey what this experience at sea was like to regular people. And I think I did it pretty successfully. Um, and I'm, I'm not unique in this. Other people have done this for sure. The teacher at sea, there's a teacher at sea program that is robust and meaningful. Um, but it was an experience that I had that I enjoyed, and it kind of bridged my two worlds and, and kind of transitioned me into education as a full-time gig. Mm-hmm. And, and so, no, no, so, not, no, it wasn't. I was already educated by that time. Sorry, I'm missing, missing yeah, my right. chronology. Yeah, right. You were, you were but, yeah. Yeah. So Seeks, in fact, reflects that idea. And and by the way, you just you sort of helped me understand another thing here, which is that that my mom and dad also, probably not deliberately, but were doing it instinctually, were providing me and with my brothers and my sister with super engaging learning opportunities mm-hmm. that were far outside of regular school. And th- that I, re- I realized sort of now that that drove me forward as a teacher as well. Um, not the formal education that I did. But so so Seeks in a way is reflective of that sense on your part of of what that means, that you're you're working in a duality between speaking science and speaking to kids. And that's probably true for, for many people in their different fields that they come from. Mm. What are your yeah. thoughts? Well, I, I'd say, honestly, I'd Here's the reality. I'm not the teacher at Seeks, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I and I, I haven't been. And so yeah. it's my job is as first the school leader and now the executive director is to make sure that the teachers who we hire at Seeks and that create these you know, teachers are the ones creating meaningful mm. learning experiences for students now. We can make sure that we hire people that value those learning experiences above all else. Right. And you know, 
the thing that I'm most compelled to respond to about what you said is that your parents were creating, your parents provided you with meaningful learning experiences. I think, Josh, that's where real learning, real learning happens. Like, but I'm a parent now. I wasn't a parent when I became an educator, but I'm a parent now. I feel the responsibility to, for my children to have learning, meaningful learning experiences, and especially now in this pandemic. But in general, that's what we do as parents is we provide rich learning. We provide the soil. We provide these rich learning experiences and opportunities for our kids. And I think that somehow in society over the last, I don't know how long, we've kind of delegated that responsibility to schools. Mm. And I think that that's not quite right. I mean, I actually have stronger feelings than that, but I'm not going to say it so overtly right now. But I think that when we give away that primary responsibility hmm. to an institution or institutions, we kind of give up on our collective responsibility as society hmm. to raise good humans. Hmm. And then we try and, de- and we de- delegate that. And I think that seeks is a place where we're not delegating that. We're, you know, we're trying to work together, but most importantly, we're trying to help students have those meaningful learning spaces, whether or not, because not everybody has the same opportunity at home. They have working parents. They have one parent. They have, everybody's got different situations at home. So I think one of the ways that schools can, can function is to help everyone have meaningful learning experiences. Right. But that right. is, of course, what schools should be. Right, right. Okay, so... Let's move to a different part of your life, Buffy. So okay. you you volunteered with Teachers Without Borders in 2008 and 2010, leading mm-hmm. math and science workshops for teachers in South Africa. And this is a program right. organized in Hawaii by Eunice Peer, an educator at right. Punahou School and one of my personal superheroes for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was that experience and in what ways did it inform the design of SEEKS as you began to think about it in 2011 and then as it was executed in 2013? In other words, where in SEEKS DNA do we find the concept or the idea or the theory uh, behind Teachers Without Borders? So Eunice would say, Eunice reminds me of this occasionally, like he remembers a moment when we were in a particular part of South Africa on a walk through a forest when I apparently said, I want to start a school. I don't actually remember that moment, but Eunice is confident that it happened in South Africa. Um, but I'd say, I'm going to give another specific example of something that's part of the DNA of Sikhs is that, okay. so the first time I went, in 2008, I went, I was, I led science workshops. So the basic concept of Teachers Without Borders, now called Teachers Across Borders, is that, um, Eunice brings a team of U.S.-based math and science teachers to help lead teacher workshops in South Africa for teachers um, because one of the things that is the driver of it is that during the years of apartheid, non-whites were not educated in math and science. and But now, in post-apartheid years, those that folks have to teach math and science who didn't necessarily have explicit education in math and science. And so one of the things that we do, that we did in the Teachers um, Without Borders program is to just go peer-to-peer, lead peer-to-peer workshops and say, and we have, they don't have a lot of resources and they have large classes. And so we would try and share with them some experiential uh, ideas that we had for 
what we were able to do in some math classes and some science classes. And then some opportunity ended up, you know, teaching the concepts at the same time as we taught them how to teach the concepts. Um, I'm conscious right now of finding like the great white hope, but no, I don't think that I don't think that we were that. I think we the way we were received was so it was it was peer to peer and it was just such a powerful. I would say for me, Josh, the most powerful part of that experience in 2008 was I realized. I mean, it's a really big shift to realize that you can educate to going from I know how to educate students to I can actually mm. help my peers. I can help other adults. Right. So that was the most powerful part of it for me in 2008 was realizing, oh, wow, the same basic concepts of how I interact with students actually work with working with other adults as well. Um, that was really powerful. And then in 2010, so in 2010, I helped lead math workshops and the way that we did it. Years, this was all about iteration, and every year was a little bit different. Um, in 2010, the way that we did it was we did partners. So um, I ended up co-leading a series of math workshops with Kwezi, Kwezi, who's a South African, um, who had participated in Teachers Without Borders workshops in previous years and had a role in South Africa where he was sort of kind of like, you might say, like a complex area superintendent or something like that, where he was a leader among leaders. And we co-led a math workshop. I think our topics were probability and we had a couple of topics that were assigned to us that we were doing, and we had never worked together before. Mm. And yet, we both had a fundamental understanding of math. We both had some ideas of, of of activities to do, and we worked together so well. He would share something, and then I would jump in and add to it, and then I would lead something, and he would jump in and add to it. And it was such a powerful experience to co-lead with someone else, and I would say that wasn't the first time I had had that experience. Actually, I think it was the first time. It wasn't the last time I had had that experience. But that one was so shifting for me because, you know, we talk about collaborative teaching and we talk about interdisciplinary stuff, but the actual experience of doing something with another adult that the outcome was better together than either one of us could have done individually, Mm -hmm. it was so like fulfilling. It was so incredibly fulfilling. I rode the high from that um, for years, Mm. for years from that. Um, And that is built into the DNA of SEEK because our EQS courses are by design co-taught by four or five different teachers sharing the same physical space. Mm. One, you know, they might take turns with who's the lead on this, but they jump in with each other. And the other thing about SEEK is that we have a, a, inclusion model and every one of our content courses has two adults in it whether the second adult is a special education teacher or an academic inclusion specialist or an educational assistant but we have two adults in every class and so it's inherent that idea of two people together Hmm. can usually do something better than one alone could do and there's lots of different ways to make that work and every every pair or group of four has to work it out, but it's inherent in the Sikh's model. Wow, I've I've 
co-taught multiple times and can speak directly to the power of, of that concept. And I'm just like, I know I'm an education geek, but I'm in serious chicken skin right now listening to you, you know, <laughs> talk about that because it, it, you know, the way that it's, the, the way that it's so embedded deep in, in Seek's DNA, you know, it just means that there's this powerful collaborative ethic that's going on every day, all day long. Um, and that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I just want to name Josh that like you and I, back when we talked together, we <laughs> yes. fantasized about this. I mean, I we specifically did. remember the conversations we would sit and have at lunchtime where you would tell me about this primary document work that students were doing in your mm. social studies classes. And I would tell you about the work my students were doing in physics mm. and chemistry classes. And we just were kind of like wide eyed looking at each other saying like, that's yep. the same basic skill set. Like, right. wow, your historical thinking and my scientific thinking, and we, you know, most education happens in silos, and that was what was happening because that's the design of most schools. And so, you know, I would teach kids the scientific method, which I don't really believe in as such, but, you know, how to think like a scientist. You would teach kids how to think like a historian, right. and we would fantasize about, like, wow, what if we could do that together and help <laughs> kids make that explicit connection, right? Yes. Yep. Well, guess what? That's what they do in EQS. Yeah. EQS is designed to help kids make the explicit connection between different disciplines and also that transfer between what they learn in their morning classes, math for the sake of math, science for the love of investiga investigations, and then in the afternoon, it's like, oh, I'm going to go apply that in this different scenario mm -hmm. where right. we're doing stream work. And I need to think about all the folks on the, you know, in the surrounding community. So I need to use my, not just historical thinking skills, but social, social thinking skills and evaluating right. multiple perspectives. But I also need to use what I learned in my science classes about taking accurate data and drawing right. conclusions from that, right? So it's just the concept of EQS is let's not silo, silos are manufactured, real life is interdisciplinary. Right. And Adults, the adults love it too. I would say the number one thing that teachers at Seeks say that they love about working at Seeks is that they get to be learners too. Mm. Because wow. there's no way to not be. Yep. Yep. That's, that's awesome. Okay, so hey listeners, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest. Buffy Cushman-Pates is the Executive Director of SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability. She is also a member of the Hawaii Innovative Leaders Network. So Buffy, um, the Hawaii State Legislature passed the state's charter school law in 1994. And as originally passed, the law authorized up to 25 existing schools to become, quote, student-centered schools. And the state's first such school opened in 1995. So here's my question. Where in Seek's DNA do we find the spirit and the intent of Hawaii's original charter school law? And I'll say parenthetically, Hopefully, as we work through this, folks listening will understand charters in general a little bit better, a little bit more, because charters are pretty controversial topics across the country, especially right now. 
say our charters are so different in Hawaii than they are mm. anywhere else in the United yeah. States. And That's I almost I... wish that we had a different name. Yeah. I wish that charters could be called innovation schools or mm. something or community based schools because I think that's the place where what we do at Seeks is really in the spirit of original concept of charter schools. Which now I just want to name that there's multiple different things. First of all, I wasn't a charter leader back at the time of the original law passing. And I want to give a shout out to those folks who are still in leadership of the world of charter schools who have been in it for a long time, know this history better than I do and also know its origins better than I do. Mm. Um, But I'm going to say that what I have deduced over the years of becoming, you know, of, of becoming what I am in the world of charter schools is that charters are inherently community based, that we are responsive to and serve our communities. And what a community looks like is different in different places, right? I mean, there's there's a schools and on, on every island and that serve the specific parts of the island. Seeks as a Honolulu-based school, I can tell you that at the time of our you know development, the community needs that I think that you know, you and I we were part of the founding of Seeks too, that we know that what we were responding to at the time was this sense that folks specifically around the transition to middle school, sometimes sometimes as late as high school, but really around the middle school transition, parents are looking for parents want to choose a school. Parents want to choose schools that because they start, they really know something about their kids at that time, um, and they know something about their families and their own values, and they don't necessarily just want to go to the neighborhood school. They start looking for what do different schools offer Mm. and what do I want for my family and my child? And it seemed at the, at the time of the founding of Sikhs that families felt like they had to, in order to have choice. Now this is my perception. I do not mean to make a, a statement that I knew what everybody was thinking. This is my perception based on my role as an educator and, and, and living at that time I had lived in Hawaii for um, 12 or 13 years. And okay. I've been here since 1999. Um, but my perception was that folks felt like if they wanted to choose a school, they needed to choose a private school. Mm. And I learned from so many families, you know, where, where we were teaching at the time, I mean, so many families were sacrificing so much quality of life so that they could pay to send their children to private school because they didn't feel like they could get what they wanted from, um, their neighborhood public school. And so at the time of Sikhs founding, it was let's offer a school of choice that families feel like they can consider among their neighborhood school option, the geographic exception option, private school options. But like, let's make a charter school of choice that aligns with values. Mm. Um, so I, I think, you know, I'm, there's a long way of answering because the Honolulu community is so big, most communities are smaller than mm. that, right? Most charter schools serve smaller communities. Those of us charter schools that are serving the Honolulu community, um, you're trying to meet the needs of a pretty big population, and we're only a small school that fits into that. So really, it was like, how do we become another positive choice for mm. families that want to choose the right education environment for their child? Mm. Is it is it fair to say, Buffy, that your entire Sikhs community is very aware that you are a choice? 
We make a point of it, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. we make sure that folks know that we are a school of choice, which, you know, the fact that we have not always been at the same place makes that obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we do some, we do a lot of open house sessions um, throughout the fall and spring and really, really encourage prospective families to come to them and for the students to come to them. And we say, here's what we are and here's what we believe. Mm-hmm. Right. If this feels like a good fit for your family, then please come. So, and then I want to be clear about that. There's two two things about that. One is I actually believe that the way that we're educating at Seeks is best for almost all kids. I don't think that there's some kids that work that who learn best mm. in some sort of lecture-based traditional school environment. They might succeed. They might get good grades and good test scores, but I don't think they actually learn best in that environment. True learning happens through experiences, and that is what we are trying to create at SEEK. So I genuinely believe that the education we're providing is a really good education for almost all students. Mm. However, I also want families to believe that. I don't want, and this is a, you know, it's an opportunity we have as a charter school, is to, I don't want, I don't want us to be arguing what we're doing within our community. Mm. I want folks to say, like, this is what I'm signing up for. I signed up for it. If it turns out that this is not what I believe in or what I want for my child, then they can opt out. Right. Um, Right. Okay. So follow-up question then. You know, also baked into the original 1994 law was the idea that these 25 charter schools and any that came after that would also serve as sort of demonstration schools or would be would be potential models for other schools, even public and private, to look at for as as sources of innovation. So is that idea, is that spirit, is that intent baked into Seeks? And I, I understand it would be a humble bake, right? That you, you wouldn't see yourselves as better at, as than anybody else, but that you would be, that your doors are open to anyone who yeah. wants to examine who you are and how you work and what your DNA is. Yeah, pretty much exactly that, Josh. Almost exactly the way you said it is that, so what I think, you know, in Hawaii, we have this department of education that, that's so large, that serves so many students in so many ways that um, be, because it's so large, it change can't really happen systemically very quickly. Hmm. Um, it can happen at sort of the classroom level and sometimes the school level. And I know the current superintendent is really wants to give schools more autonomy to make school-based decisions, but that's what, that's what charter schools have by design is school-based decision-making. And we have the ability to adapt quickly, to hmm. change quickly. And we can try something out and figure out, did this work? Nope, didn't work. You can change it. Next year, if we want, we can change it next quarter if we want. We can change it next week if we want to, um, you know, with a little bit mm. of dizziness involved in, in quick changes. But that is the opportunity that charters have is to try things out, figure out what works and what doesn't, and not necessarily have to have a whole system figure that out at once. Mm. Um, but however, I will say that I think a really, so I do think of charter schools in general as an opportunity to serve as a research and development arm of the public school system. But the missing piece or the piece that must be present in order for that to work is some sort of communication from about here's what we learned, here's what's working, here's what didn't here's what we tried and didn't work. So it's a transparency on our parts, but also, you know, some sort of mm. pathway for that information transfer to happen. Mm. Um, 
what we do on our part to facilitate that that transfer is we have pretty much open doors. We have student ambassadors who, you know, in, in normal years, lead student-led tours. We have an open-door policy. People come, you know, open-door policy once you're on a tour. You can just walk onto our campus and look around, but you can sign up, you know, say, I'd like to come visit. We love showing, sharing with other educators what's happening in our school, especially from the student perspective, and they talk about what's happening and what, how it feels to them because, you know, at the center of all this, obviously, is students. Right. Right? Students mm-hmm. are the center of our work as educators, and so we can think we're doing all the greatest things in the world, but what matters the most is what is it like for students. And so that's why we have our students give our tours. But that is that is the one that is one of the things that we try to do to service anyone else who wants to learn from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are pretty open. Kids are open about it too. We're pretty open about what we've tried this hasn't <laughs> as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, Buffy. Um, we're going to take a short break. So everybody stay with us. We'll come back with more questions for Buffy Cushman-Pates. Stay with us. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. My name is Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Today, we are with Buffy Cushman-Pates, the executive director of SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability. So Buffy, you and I taught together at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls 
um, while I was teaching history, Hawaiian studies and economics, you were teaching chemistry, physics, geology, and math. And we founded La Pietra's National Honor Society together. We worked together on La Pietra's faculty forum and also reevaluating its block schedule. And you also advised its green club and independent projects and much more. So... Here's my question. In, in, Josh, do you remember all that about me or is that I, on my resume? Okay. <laughs> well, it's partly from your resume, but also partly what, what I remember together. Um, and <laughs> so in, in what ways did your experience teaching at La Pietra manifest itself in the DNA of Sikhs, which would come later? And I want to I just add a caveat to this question, which is, in, in no way, shape, or form do I want to throw La Pietra under the bus. Uh-uh. But uh-uh. Um, I also invite you to be, be, you know, straight about what it was that you wanted to do and what it was that you didn't want to do at Seeks vis-a-vis your experience at La Pietra. And I have my feelings about that as well, so... <laughs> well, I, I mean, I would say there's a lot of things about what worked at La Pietra that are absolutely built into the concept of Sikhs. And then some places where I thought there was room for improvement, that I did my best to improve in the design of Sikhs. But I think fundamentally what I loved most about working at La Pietra was the students. I loved the students mm-hmm. and I really loved the way they interacted with each other. Mm-hmm. I, Me too. I, there was, there's a sense, there's a sense of community there and girls supporting each other. And I found, you know, as a woman in science and math, I really enjoyed teaching science and math to other young, to young women and uh, showing them what was possible at the time that felt really meaningful and powerful to me to I don't want to say despise stereotypes but model a model something that maybe there weren't as many models of Hmm. of of successful um, you know folks that whose brains work in this in this way um, and really comfortable with it and I think that that environment so anyway an all-girls school is not what I created right. <laughs> um, but but what I did want to recreate was the community of, of mm. comfort and asking questions but also the support of each other and especially in a multi-age environment so even though the classes weren't you know, necessarily multi-age, a few of them are, but um, that 6th through 12th grade, I'd say that's another thing that was really meaningful to me. My first year at La Pietra, I taught 7th grade math, and then my last year at La Pietra, I taught those same 7th graders in physics as 12th graders, and I watched them graduate. And getting to watch the evolution of young women from, you know, 12 years old to graduating from high school was so incredibly rewarding. Um, that I designed Seeks to be a 6th through 12th grade school. Now, as you know, mm-hmm. it is currently only a middle school, but it has always been designed to be a 6th through 12th grade school, and we're not yet high school grades because we're facilities limited, but it mm. is absolutely designed to be a 6th through 12th grade school, middle and high school, so that students can have that opportunity to ex- get exposure and then grow and develop and really bloom. Um, so the community I, I really liked, I also, um, I, I, I liked the long blocks of time mm. for students to really dig into things. And I think that was really, really important. So those long blocks of time, now how they were organized 
I found a little bit frustrating as a teacher. Now, as an administrator, I understand all the variables to go into schedule creation and, and how complicated it is to make things work for students and for teachers. Um, but at the time, as a teacher, I found it, uh, I, I loved low, long chunks of time, and I wanted them to be a little bit more consistent. So I did my best to build that into mm. the, the design for the seat schedule. I, I definitely think that one of my fundamental values that went into Seeks is how you spend your time is how you enact your values. Mm. And so the entire, the, so the schedule, I really think how students spend their time and how teachers spend their time needs to be super intentional. And so I took elements of what I loved about how we spent our time at La Pietra and I fixed the elements of what I didn't love about how we spent our time. And when I say we, I mean both students and teachers. Mm. Um, Another feature that I really liked um, was the concept of advisory, which is, you know, not unique to La Pietra. It's, it's a concept in a lot of different schools. Um, but the concept of, you know, having that community, but I wanted more time with students. I wanted more time to have relationships with students that weren't just designed around academic content. Um, mm -hmm. And I would say that that was a thing that, you know, might have been my own teaching, my own responsibility that I felt as a teacher. This would have been true at any school, no matter what school. But as a chemistry teacher, I felt the responsibility for students to learn enough chemistry to be successful in their next class, in college, or if they were to become a scientist. So I really took every moment of the time that we had in chemistry class, and I made sure it was focused on chemistry. Um, so I didn't you know, the only times I talked about myself or that we had these, you know, conversations with students within the time between classes or mm. in advisory or when the students came in at lunchtime or when the students came in after school. And yet I could tell, well, first of all, they were really meaningful to me. Those, the times that I loved the most were the times um, when I got to connect with students. And I could tell that that was really meaningful for the students to get to connect with an adult mm. who they respected about being a whole person. Mm. So, you know, mm -hmm. telling them what I did on the weekends or that I played ultimate in an ultimate frisbee tournament or whatever. I wouldn't do that during our 70 minutes or 80 minutes of class time. I would do it in the outside mm. class time. Mm -hmm. But in SEEKS, I designed, I designed it into SEEKS for students and adults to have time to build relationships mm. that are not just built about around academic content. Wow. And they do that through our advisory and our physical activity blocks that are 40 minutes every morning of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. And then also they do a lot of it in EQS because EQS is so much of a co-learning experience and so much of an, you know, in the field, working in a garden environment or designing, you know, working in the stream. Those are just whole person experiences that students and teachers really get to develop those relationships. So, wow. um, yeah, that. That's that's so that's so interesting, Buffy. Because you know that was actually going to be my one of my follow up questions was about time, and you've answered that. And I think what what I pull away is I'm, I'm thinking all these conversations that I've had over the last few years with educators 
uh, around this state. I think oftentimes time feels like a burden to them. And it sounds mm-hmm. like at Seeks, time is a, a in its DNA is a, is a great opportunity. It's a huge opportunity. You guys see it that way. Like time is our ally. Time is how we're, we're going to shape time in a way that makes relationships possible and community possible and thoughtfulness and essential questions possible. I mean, that is absolutely what went into the design of the seek schedule for both students and teachers is how do we make sure? Because, you know, as I would say as a person in life, I don't want to say just as a teacher or whatever, I hate having my time wasted. I mm. really hate time not well spent. And I, as a, as a school leader, I want to make sure that I really want everything that we do to be intentional. Um, so, Again, how you spend your time is how you enact your values. And so the, the the work was, what do I value? What do we value in a school environment? Value physical activity because it engages the brain. We value interdisciplinary learning. But we also value disciplinary learning. And mm-hmm. we value building community. And so making sure, and we also value collaboration time for teachers. We value teachers having time to do what they need to do as whole people. So there's some flex time built into our teacher schedule. Um, but really evaluating what, what I mean, and I, I just, it's worth saying, I, I was thinking about it, as, you know, back when I was doing the original design against a lot of collaborators. But there's a, I see the schedule is my brainchild. Um, mm. And it was really intentionally, really intentionally designed to make sure that everyone gets to spend their time in ways that reflect the values of the school. And I think that gets back to, like, if it doesn't reflect your values as a parent, as a student, as a teacher, then that's okay, but it just isn't necessarily the right place for you. Right. Because like this is what we value, so we try and be really clear about that. But, Josh, I don't want to make it sound like we don't all feel pressed for time. Oh, yeah. yeah. We do. Yeah. Every day. It is my number one stressor. <laughs> Time stress is my number one stress as mm-hmm. a working parent, as a, you know, a person who's involved in a lot of different things, as a school leader. But one of my best friends said to me one time when I was like, I'm so busy. I don't have enough time. She said, Buffy, we all have 24 hours in a day. Right. Nobody has any more time than anyone else. And I think it's true. I mean, obviously it's true. It's <laughs> obviously true but i mean i thought it was a really good perspective of that we all just have to decide how am i going to slice up my time because there's only 24 hours in a day for every single one of us and so we got to be thoughtful about how do i want to spend those 24 hours and i really think that each one of us needs to own that for ourselves i want students to feel like they own that for themselves too and yes of course there are structures and systems that we're a part of that make some of those decisions for us, mm. including the concept of school, right? Right. Um, right. Yeah. And faculty meetings and whatever. But still, even within those, I think we can design structures and we've intentionally designed structures that say, okay, well, now we're going to spend this time on this and now we spend this time on this. But then mm. still, it still takes work to be intentional yeah. and making sure that every moment is is towards something you value. Right. Okay, so so related question. Um, again, same sort of preamble about the time that you and I spent together at La Pietra. Um, our approach to grading student work 
at, mm-hmm. at La Pietra, and also for me in other contexts as well. When I, I taught at Pono, I taught at Ilani. It was conventional and traditional, um, yet Sikh's approach to assessing student work is very, very different. So why? If, if we had to trace the DNA of Sikh's approach to assessing student learning and development, where would that tracing take us? You know, so I'm going to answer this question, maybe not in the way that you're trying to set me up. <laughs> okay. answer, you take it wherever you want to I'll go. Answer, I'll answer it in the way that just, so I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the two-year-old's obviously not in school. She goes to preschool, but, but whatever. School, kind of like whatever about school. My kids are learning all day, every day. It's what they do. It's what little people do as they're growing. And if you if you allow yourself to think about it, we as adults are learning all the time too. This concept of learning is sometimes people think of learning as only this like really, really narrow definition of learning. But learning is getting better at something. We are always getting better at things, whether it's how to better have a conversation with your partner mm-hmm. <laughs> or uh how to make a better omelet or <laughs> how to stop the mealy bugs from growing on your tomato plants I and mean, we're just yeah everything in life is learning right right um and we have this inherent sense like not just inherent sense like there's sometimes really obvious answers it's like did we get it right like, uh, I mean, has been like fighting, or do we have a successful, difficult conversation? Like, are the mealybugs gone? Or are they here? Is it just something is, is yeah. all that better, or is it terrible? Right? There's, sometimes it's just really obvious. Like, did it work? Was it successful? Hmm. And I actually think a lot more times than we realize what success looks like, we have a really good sense of it. Hmm. We have a really good sense as humans if we allow ourselves to step away from being educators and teachers, and in this, like, I have to grade students, but instead say, I actually know what it means to be successful here, Mm. and my job is to help students know what that success looks like and feels like, too. You, I know what it is to be a scientist because I am a scientist. You know what it's like to really think like a historian because you do it, too, right? Our job is to help students get that deep sense of what mastery looks and feels like mm. and so my I mean, I'm trying to get a name this is always constant work because it's, it takes some unlearning right we were all graded graded like that that grading that concept is it takes the ownership of what success looks like away from the learner mm. and um gives it to someone else and i, I mean it's, it's a it's a fine line right because there are things that Adults do know better than students just from the collection of experiences that we have. Mm. And so I think our work as educators is to help students, A, have those experiences, and B, learn from our experiences that we've already had that identify, here's what success looks like, and I'm going to help you Mm. be able to identify it and work towards it. Right. So, you know, when I think about assessment like that, I I try and get us always back to that place of like our gut of was this good enough? Is this quality? And I'm not thinking about like writing a paper. I'm thinking about like, did you collect meaningful data from that your 
work at the stream. Sorry about my stream reference. Literally, I'm stream that runs through our campus right now. So there's a lot of stream work. But like, they do collect meaningful data that helps you understand the population of invasive versus native species because that's what you're trying to figure out. And so that's how you identify what success is. Like, can I learn the thing I'm trying to learn here? Can I know the thing I'm trying to know here? Hmm. And then you have to work backwards to try and make sure that your rubrics and your standards and all those things really align with what we know about being human and what it means to be a successful, masterful human. Mm, yeah. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and I just, I've just all of a sudden my, you know, my brain is firing off again about my childhood and where I, I grew up on Kanoe Bay and, and every single day outside of school was a process of just trying to get a little bit better at something, this, that, or the other, and trying to determine whether or not I was or not getting better. Um, so yeah. yeah, that's, that's so cool. All right. So we're going to, we're going to shift directions here a little bit, but, and also I just want to. You know, I want to be let our listeners know that you and I are going to be careful not to go too deep in the weeds on this one. But um, <laughs> so back in October 2015, Buffy, after Seeks had already been established, you and I and Mark Hines and some others collaborated to make happen Hawaii's first community screening of Ted's uh, Dinter Smith's film, Most Likely to Succeed. I think about 125 people showed up for that event and its post-event panel discussion. So here's the question. Um, in what ways is the DNA of Sikhs similar or different from the DNA of High Tech High in San Diego? And if, if we had to trace the DNA of Sikhs public displays of learning back to something, what would that something be? So actually there's kind of two parts to that question. Um, you know, High Tech High was one of the many influences in the design of Sikhs. Um, and I wouldn't say that, yeah, it was one of it was one of many. Another is, is the Met in Providence, Rhode Island, that has this internship-based school, and then some Waldorf approaches and Montessori and all these. Um, mm. So I would say that High Tech High wasn't necessarily a specific, it, it was a collection of best practices and meaningful learning experiences for students that that I learned about over the course of, and I don't know if we're going to talk about this part of my history, but I spent a year doing a fellowship in Washington, D.C., where I got a lot of exposure to a lot of educators and schools and programs, and then I spent a year um, in graduate school in, in Massachusetts, where I got to spend a lot of time digging deeply into various schools and like, getting a lot of insider look at schools, and so you know, my approach is just observe say, ooh, that looks good, ooh, let's do that, ooh, let's do that. And, um, you know, uh, public project exhibitions are clearly meaningful for students, and so we built them in. And um, I would say portfolio defenses are really meaningful and relevant learning experiences, so we built those in. Once our students are in high school, we will have internships because they're going to be really meaningful. And all of these are things that picked up from various um various schools in various places. And I would say that High Tech High actually wasn't, uh, at the time of, of Seeks' original design, it wasn't a singular influence. But it had lots of commonalities. Because I think, because I think Joshua would say that, I think the reality is this isn't about individual schools. It's about what is learning. Mm, right. <laughs> what is learning truly? What learning truly is, and the reality is as humans, if we could stop ourselves from thinking about schools, 
as the place of learning and instead think of life as the place of learning, when we can get ourselves back to that thinking about learning, which again, it comes really natural as a parent, especially parents of young people, because they're like really little ones, because they're just doing it all the time and you're around them a lot. Um, but when we get ourselves back to that place of learning, then we want to design schools to make sure those powerful learning experiences. And I think they know that at High Tech High, and they know that at the Met, and they know that at all school. They know that all these different, you know, and lots, but let me just also name at so many of our Hawaiian focus charter schools mm-hmm. where the learning is authentic and it's based in cultural values and it's based in the real people and place that we are in and, and, and what we're doing and what meaningful work looks like and, you know, how to care for an ahupua'a because, we, you know, let's get back to the sustainability element of this of like, we actually need to sustain ourselves and life on earth in a meaningful, healthy way. And Hawaiian focus charter schools are just really in, it's, it's inherent in, in, in the design of, of so many of them. So there's so many different schools and, mm-hmm. and school designs that have influenced what SEEKS is. But what I think all of us have in common is meaningful work. Mm. Wow. Meaningful learning experience. Mm-hmm. And it and and within the DNA of SEEKS exists a mindset that says we are a collection of lots of really interesting things about learning and that we're very open to ideas as it will, that we're not a closed system that just operates efficiently over and over again every day. We're actually an open system. It's like a, it's like open source in a way. Almost to a fault actually, because we're (laughs) so susceptible to ideas that we're, we have a, you know, a, a faculty of folks that are willing to try things and willing to iterate, but we can overwhelm ourselves and exhaust ourselves with all of the different things we're willing to try. Mm. Um, but you know, yeah. Everything's got its pros and cons. <laughs> right, right. So, okay, so along the same lines, um, you know, Buffy, when I went down this kind of Seek's genome <laughs> rabbit hole, um, I got very interested in the, the DNA of your faculty. And you've referenced this already, but um, I had some trouble figuring out how to ask this question without it becoming like weirdly like an argument between intelligent design and Darwinian ele- uh, you know, evolution and a, with, a, with a touch of GMOs. But here it goes. I'm just going to fire away. So when, when anyone reads all of the bios of Seek's faculty and staff on your website, it, You're like blown away, right? Yeah. I, I, what, I, what I thought to myself is you have to come away with the feeling that there is a particular faculty and staff DNA at SEEKS. So if you can help me sort this out. So to what extent is that organic body of faculty and staff intentionally designed and or to what extent is it like a wildflower bloom in the vast prairie grasses? If you, you know, that's where my mind went. I was all over the place. Um. I mean, I would say that our, our, our faculty is, I, I think the most important thing we do at our school, and I'm, I'm really passionate about it, is a hiring process that is 
really designed to help people, to help us understand who people are that are interviewing and then help them understand who we are because at the beginning of the process, it's us selecting them. And at the end of the process, it's them selecting us. So it's a multi-step interview process that involves, you know, it honestly self-selects because you don't just apply to Seek for the resume and cover letter. We ask you to say, why am I a good fit for Seek? So that's a very, you know, it's kind of a filter of you have to look at, it's all about fit. So because if we have somebody that comes into Seek and thinks that lecture is, you know, lecture 80% of the time that they're in front of students is the way that they prefer to educate students and that's not a fit mm-hmm. and just let us know that from the beginning but honestly they would figure it out by re- because the first step of the interview process is read our website learn about us now tell us why you think you're a good fit for students so we are people self-select through the interview process and then we have a multi-stage interview process that involves um that involves showing us a portfolio of what you've done as an educator in the past that also involves a sample teaching session with our students and our students have a feedback protocol um, that that lets them tell us. Now, they're not always the most spot on, but we learn a lot from teachers. We just get to see how teachers interact with kids because obviously that matters more than anything else. Mm. Um, And then the third round of interview process is a collaborative work session with existing SEEK faculty so that we can see how we work together because our school is so interdependent. Um, So, you know, the interview process goes a really long way into making sure that folks that do join our SEEKs community know what they're joining into and want to join it Mm. and have value to add. Um, did I answer your question? Yeah. And you know, yes, very much. And you know, Buffy, what I was, I was just like thinking and thinking about this last night. And I, I'm, I guess, let me, let me just ask it as a follow-up question, like to, you know, to what extent does Seeks as a, as a, an entity shape the faculty as a group and to what extent does the faculty shape itself? Do you see where I'm going with that? It's like, you know, you you might select a particular professional development opportunity that shapes the faculty, but then the faculty every single day, all day long are actually shaping themselves as a kind of organic body. That's what I was really thinking about. Yeah. And, And it's both. It's absolutely both. And it's a, you know, Part of my role and, and Lisa Kinsey's role as a school, my role as executive director and Lisa Kinsey's role as school leader is to find the right balance of, of leading and shaping the direction that we head, you know, from a strategic vision of, of what we are trying to be and what we were from mm-hmm. the beginning. Um, and then also letting letting the flowers grow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, letting those wildflowers grow that, that you were describing before. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a fine balance between those two. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as you spoke was teachers, not just teachers, faculty and staff absolutely grow and, and become um, more sexy 
lose our time at Seeks because mm-hmm. we do intentional work together, including when we've been working on this, and I feel like we're finally getting somewhere that really feels good, but we've been working with our new faculty onboarding processes to help folks understand not just what we do, but why we do. So every structure and every meeting that happens in our school and every different part of the day for students is intentional, but those intentions can get lost over time unless you're actively working to mm. help everyone understand this is the reason why we do this. Right. So that's a part of the intentional work of new faculty onboarding and even our ongoing professional development is to cycle back to this is the why we do student, you know, every year before student-led conferences, we cycle back to this is why we do student-led conferences. These are the tenets of what makes them so mm. special and so you know, just yesterday at faculty professional development, we had a couple of teachers do a role play of what a student-led conference can look like when wow. it can go wrong and here, here are the ways. And so we just do that constant cycling back to the things that matter to us. Mm. I think that's my role and Lisa's role as leaders is, is making sure that the, those, those core elements are, are brought back to the forefront over and over and over again. Awesome. I want to, I want to come at it one uh, one more time with a with a follow up um slightly different angle to this question you have a faculty member her first name is is it Kara or Kara Kara she actually is Kara Kara so i i spent a lot of time reading her bio and nowhere in her bio buffy do we find an undergraduate or graduate degree in math on the contrary you know, she majored in psychology and minored in French. Um, and yet she's one of your math teachers. And I was struck that that was true for several people on your staff. So what are your, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, I have so many thoughts about that. Let me first give a few props to uh, Doc Shad because Kata Shadrin just uh, within the last few minute, uh, months finished her EDD and is now a Dr. Shadrin, and the students oh. have dubbed her Doc Shad. Um, and so I <laughs> doubt awesome. that that actually shows up on her bio yet. Um, no, not yet. But, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts about that, Josh, because I also taught math and nowhere in my background did it say that I was, you know, that I have any degrees in, in math. But, you know, I, yeah, gosh, I could go really deep with this question a really long way. And I'll go with the, when we, when I went to college over 20 years ago, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was majoring in. You somewhat arbitrarily pick a major, and then that becomes attached to your, you know, credentials for the rest of your life, as though we knew when we were 19 years old what we wanted to do with the rest of our lives. Um, I actually want my students to have some sense of what they want to do with the rest of their lives, but I don't think 20 year, 20 or more years ago that was normal for folks to really know what they wanted to do for the rest of their lives. So you get a degree, and I think more than anything, my own my my thoughts on this is that college is more about the experience of college and the learning that comes from the experience of college and not so much about the specific degree you get and that the actual, your actual ability to um, be successful and have pedagogical content knowledge comes from in content knowledge but also from the experience of teaching and um, Prada has a degree in elementary education and so she teaches sixth grade math which is considered part of the elementary credential and you know (laughs) I taught some college classes when you're teaching college classes 
I would say 80, 90% of your job is about the content. When you're teaching middle school, maybe 20% of your job is about mm, the content. Right. And the other 80% is classroom management and building structures and connecting with kids and social emotional learning and working with parents. Um, and so Kata has a lot of, I mean, we're talking about Kata specifically, but I know that we're asking, you're asking about in general, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. People's experiences shape them more than their degrees do. I mean, sometimes a degree can be a really powerful experience, but I think their experiences shape them. And our, and our teachers do become um, highly qualified for the subject areas that they teach. It's just it's not necessarily the degree that they originally got. And I think it comes because you learn about yourself as you grow, and that a lot of that happens after college, after you get that degree. Mm. Mm. I, I remember, Buffy, that, um, you know, I don't have a degree in, in, in government. I don't have a degree in civics or anything related to that in sociology. But the most powerful teaching experience I ever had over 17 years was a current issues course that I team taught um, with a young guy mm-hmm. who is now um, in a school of journalism in New York City. Um, neither one of us had, you know, degrees in current issues but what we did together as collaborators was one of the most special, you know, moments of my life. Um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, so, okay. Um, so, Buffy, we've actually come down to the end here. This is amazing. <laughs> it's gone by mm-hmm. like a shot here. Um, so I'm going to return to something that you referenced earlier um, which is the pandemic and adaptability. Um, so up to now, we've not addressed the COVID-19 educational issues directly, but you know, sometimes I feel like we're awash in a thousand opinions mm-hmm. and contentions across so many media platforms right now, um, maybe so much so that it's become like white noise to a lot of people. Um, so what in the design of Sikhs and the evolution of Sikhs made it as an organic being more adaptable to the pressures of a global pandemic that shows no signs of letting up or going away? Please let it go away. Soon. I know it'll go away. We're at some living point. in a dystopian novel. I know. I'm, yeah. um, But to your your question, um, what makes Sikhs able to adapt? I mean, so there's some technical things and there's some adaptive things. On the technical side, we have a one-to-one Chromebook program, and we we always have from the beginning. So our students already had the devices that made them able to go home with the devices and know how to function in a digital environment to turn in work, et cetera. Um, that's, you know, that's just a technical thing, but it made a really big difference, right? Uh, also, we have teachers. We, we, it's written into our job description that you need to be fluent with digital technology because we do so much digital collaboration at Seeks as adults. And so our teachers were comfortable with the shift. It wasn't really that much of a shift when we needed to go to distance learning. Um, other things about Seeks is that we, we value the meaningful learning experiences. I mean, actually, let me not even go along that train of thought. This global pandemic is, requires us 
everyone in the world to examine an essential question of sustainability. Yes. <laughs> examine multiple essential questions of sustainability. And all of the things that are inherent in examining essential questions of sustainability is like what what does it take for what does it take for our society to continue to exist? Do we want society to continue to exist as it has been? How do we keep ourselves and those around us healthy? And so many more essential questions. But what these um, and then what is it what do our leaders have to consider as they're making decisions about what's best for the collection of us um, rather than any individual sector or a set of specific people? I mean, it's such complicated, complex stuff. And I think that our students and our teachers are really used to grappling with really complicated and complex stuff. And so they're able to continue to do so right now. Um, but I think more than anything, more than anything, I really hope everyone is examining the essential questions of sustainability that this pandemic has brought upon us right now, because you cannot evaluate just your own perspective right now. You've got to look at how this is affecting all different people in all different parts of the world. And you can't just think about the economics of the math part of it. You can't just think about the societal part of it because everything is interconnected. And mm-hmm. that is really, I think, the, the, the primary takeaway of examining essential questions of sustainability is that we are all interconnected. And that is so obvious mm-hmm. right now in this pandemic. And so, you know, I don't know if that exactly answers your question of like, how mm-hmm. were we better prepared for it? But it's, how mm-hmm. is it exactly the work that we are trying to set ourselves up for. It just, you know, we thought we were setting our students up for a life beyond middle school and high school, but nope, we're going to have to examine a global essential question of sustainability right now in 2020. Mm. And maybe our students can teach their parents a little bit about how to think. Uh, not that they, I mean, have brilliant parents too, um, but just the act of thinking about complex things makes us more able to think about complex things and have more empathy and compassion for each other. And, um, I think, I think Buffy, what, what really strikes me going back to the previous question about your faculty is that, um, what all of that hard, hard work that you've done with people, over the years with your faculty and staff, with your parent community, with your student community, and and all of your community partners who help you in the learning process, all of that intentional relationship work is part of the process of surviving a really difficult moment like this. Absolutely. 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 It's the soil, right? Go back to that original model. Right. That's where I was going to go. Right. You can't grow anything. You can't grow anything if you don't have soil. (laughs) Right. And so the relationships are the soil. Right. And in a pandemic where, in fact, if we don't want to stretch the metaphor too far, but, you know, the little sprouts that are growing and by the middle school level, they're, you know, they're growing fast and they're they're growing quickly and and they're healthy. Um, A pandemic can put a lot of pressure on that growth process. But ultimately, if the soil is super rich and organic with lots of nutrients, then the community will survive and adapt and grow. Right. 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 Wow. That that gives me chicken skin and it feels like a really great way, Buffy, to bring this interview to a close, this episode to a close. So 
Buffy Cushman-Pates, Executive Director of SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to you today, and I hope you and your family and your greater SEEKS family stay very safe and healthy through this difficult moment. Thanks, Josh. Right back at you. It was really uh, fun to go deep and to talk about all these things that are built into Sikhs. And, you know, we'll continue to adapt and uh, survive, right? Adapt or die. We're going to survive and we're going to thrive. Um, and I hope that's true for all of us because I think we're in an opportunity moment right now. And I think education can shift to really thinking about learning. And I hope that is a significant outcome of the time that we're living in right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Okay, Buffy, take care. You too. Bye. And now it's time for a listener review. This one comes from Three Unicorns and is titled Mahalo for the Inspiration. This podcast is so inspirational and helps spark conversations around professional development, networking, and opportunities for people in education. I listen and appreciate the connections I have to this place as a person who lives in Hawaii. It gives me a local and global view of education theory and pedagogy. Thank you, Three Unicorns. We appreciate your review, and we will continue to dig into the local and the global. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Galad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his email address and Facebook URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsandhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mltsandhawaii. Also, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. If you like this series, please give us a rating and review at your favorite podcast store. Please stay safe, wear your masks, stay socially distant from one another, and bring kindness and compassion into the world. See you soon.